Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Well, as John uh, mentioned, we're um, kind of in the, in the Lenten season. And the goal of Lent, uh, the, the, the practice classically of Lent, is space creation. To kind of be aware of the ways that over, over time life gets cluttered, uh, our minds get cluttered, our calendars get cluttered, uh, and it is very possible for s- supernatural things, extraordinary things to occur, and our lives to be so cluttered that we don't even notice. Uh, that they fly by and, and they're kind of not even a blip sometimes on the radar screen of our, of our souls. And um, we want to do whatever we can to slow down, to speed bump our lives, so that when we enter into season of uh, Holy Week, particularly, with its monumental turn of the universe back towards home, that is represented by uh, Good Friday, uh, dark and but holy Saturday, and Resurrection Sunday, that we're there. We, d- we don't want to be looking at it in somebody else's Instagram feed. We want to show up. Uh, in, and, and so Lent is a way of saying, um, in, a, in a broad category, uh, we want to slow down. We want to pay attention. We recognize we've got to take out some trash here. We got way too much stuff cluttering the lives that we we live, and of course, this is a a theme that at the garden we we celebrate and focus in on relentlessly because we recognize that this is something that just is a perennial challenge living in Long Beach, living in Southern California, uh, because. Uh, just after you've, you know, taken out the trash, people are backing dumpsters up uh, to your, right? And I mean, how many of us would just, it'd be nice if there were a trash barrel right beside the mailbox, right? Uh, I mean, it's done. Uh, and, and if we could do that with not, with just, you know, that's the paper stuff, Right? And there's ways to do that electronically and so on. There's not so, good, not so many ways to do that spiritually. And so the disciplines of the way of Jesus train us in that kind of reality. Uh, sometimes Jesus says less is actually more. And even in the places where less isn't always more, less prepares the way for more. Less enables us to recognize that there is always more of God to discover and that the main barrier, one of the main barriers for maturing, growing disciples of Jesus to what God might want to do now is what God did yesterday. We pray nostalgically all the time. And that robs us from the new that God wants us to engage in. All you have to do is look at creation and realize that God has tricks up his sleeve that we haven't even begun to enter into an experience. 
And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that God is relentlessly, endlessly creative. We see this in creation, obviously, and we just notice how much slop there is in the system, how much over, overabundance there is in the system, how many, how many experiments does he delight in, in the system. And if this is true with daisies and with daffodils and with sea creatures, why can't it be true with our ways of knowing him? So when we pray, do it again, Lord, we are praying crippling prayers. When we pray, C.S. Lewis, the, the prayer that God hates to answer is encore. Do it again. He doesn't want to do it again. He wants to do a new, new, new thing. And one of the ways then of, the, of Jesus to prepare us for this are, the, are these classical disciplines that we've been engaging in and talking about and leaning into over the last several months uh, in the way of Jesus. Darren introduced solitude and silence uh, last week, and I want to continue that conversation. Um, the solitude is stepping away uh, from defining relationships so that we can be present to God who is always present to us. Silence is twofold, uh, limiting, restricting, reducing the external noise of our lives in which we find ourselves hiding regularly so that we can increasingly reduce the internal noise of our lives so that we can hear the voice of God who is communing with us constantly. That's what those disciplines are intended. Those practices are intended to do. In other words, we're not just getting away for the sake of getting away. We're getting away for the sake of presence. We're not just not turning on the radio or punching in the Netflix code or 24-7 uh, sound in our lives. We are seeking to eliminate those ways of distraction so that we can be attentive to God who is always speaking to us and whose favorite voice is silence. Favorite voice is silence. It's one of the reasons why he made so much of it. It is silence that gives meaning and definition to sound. Whenever a melody is played on a piano, for example. Eighty-seven notes are silent. And that gives definition to the one note that's played. That's how silence frames. You know how this, those of you who are experts in graphic design, know that most legibility is lost by putting too much on the page. That's why we need margins. That's why we need spaces. That's why certain fonts read easier than other fonts do. We need space. So it's not surprising that there are multiple stories about this. I have been asked to look with you at a case study in the learning of solitude and silence uh, from the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite stories uh, in, in many ways. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 13. The character is one that we have some familiarity with. His name is Elijah. He is the first 
kind of major prophet in the Old Testament as through they've moved into the land and so on and so forth, uh, and, and is God's spokesperson to a, a series of kings uh, as, as Israel has begun the circ- to circle the drain of its own existence. Uh, so so this, this is a, a pivotal character. In fact, so, so pivotal is he that he is the one that the Israelites expected to return before a Messiah would come. So they're expecting this character because of what he did and how he did it. His primary nemesis, if you will, is a king named Ahab with his foreign wife named Jezebel, whose name has gone down in history for being that kind of person. All right? And what makes her that kind of person is not that she's just a nasty piece of work, which as it turns out, she is, but because she, when she married into the royal household of Ahab, brought her foreign gods with her. And Ahab, loved smitten, built temples to foreign gods on Israel's soil. This is not good, right? God told us we can't be doing this. We lose our platform of holiness to partner with God in saving the world, right? And as a result, Jezebel and Elijah and Ahab and Elijah are in constant tension and conflict. Their problem, of course, is that the gods that Jezebel inherited and brought in have nothing on the God of Israel. It's just that Israel seems to forget that consistently and constantly. You might be interested to know that the main God that Jezebel brought in was a God who will continue to trouble Israel for a number of generations named Baal or Baal, B-A-A-L. Right? Baal was responsible in the, in the uh, kind of pantheon of gods for wind, waves, weather, primarily those kinds of things. So he is related to things like harvest and so on and so forth, right? And Israel, wanting to hedge their bets, both prayed for a good harvest and sacrificed to Baal. So they're trying to play both ends against the middle, right? And Elijah recognizes the insanity of this, you can head in two different directions at the same time, and regularly brought this to the awareness of the people, and they they just ignored him. It's like, if one God's good, two gods are better. The problem with that, of course, is that if one God is the God, any other God is not God and is an enemy of God, right? Right? Uh, and so Elijah said, enough of this, and he made it stop raining. No, yeah, he made it stop raining, which, as you can imagine, has a detrimental effect on crops. And so harvest is diminished, and of course the people are, are freaking out. Which bet didn't pay off? Now he's told them, but they double down on Baal worship because he's the guy in charge specifically of wind waves weather, right? And, and, and this is not going well until finally Elijah's just fed up and says, look, it's about three years into this experiment, you'd think they'd clue in, but they, like us, think, no, let's just try harder next time to do the wrong thing. Anybody else fall into that same thing? It's not working, but let's, let's try it again. No, no, that's the definition of insanity. To do the same thing and expect different results 
Yeah. So Elijah calls this out and he says, let's come on. Let's 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 get McMahon in here and do a WWF. We're going to do a smackdown. We're going to do your God against my God. Right. And they do the contest. Mount Carmel. You've heard the story. Four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal. It hasn't rained for three years. Uh, and, OK, let's see which God is the God who can pull this off. They build the altar. They put a, 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 a slaughtered animal on the altar ready for the fire to fall from whichever God it is that is capable of response. And, of course, the prophets of Baal are, this is not a contest they would have chosen, but now they're kind of in it, and so they go all out for about six hours. No response whatsoever. And, and Elijah is talking smack. He's... he's He's browbeating their God. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Check it out. Maybe, maybe he's watching that episode. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe the Olympics. Maybe the, we don't know. We don't know. But he's not paying attention. Just yell louder. And they're cutting themselves and all kinds of other stuff. And finally, about 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Elijah says, enough. Stand back. He takes his altar, animal on it, and then he takes 12, digs a trench around it, 12 buckets of the most precious resource in Israel at this time after three and a half years of famine, three and a half years of drought, buckets of water, and he pours them over the sacrifice, right? And then he just says, stand back. Okay, almost literally, Lord, your deal, and fire falls and consumes the sacrifice, consumes the altar on which the It eats up the rocks. That's how powerful this, and lips, licks up the, the, the water, right? So, and, and 450 prophets of Baal that day lose their lives as a result of the triumph of God over, over Baal, right? Oh, and by the way, he ends the day by making it rain again. Now, that's a good day's work right there for a prophet of God. <laughs> You know, some Sundays you just hope for a win like that, right? And you'd think that one of those would be enough, right? But here's what happens. Here's what happens. He gets a text from Jezebel because she's not happy about this outcome. And she says, you're, you're going down like those 450 are going down. And it hits Elijah at precisely the moment that his body is draining the adrenaline from that high energy ministry day. And it gets, because the, 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 the gift of depression is God's way of restoring the body to normal health after high energy exertion. Right? Any of you who have done presentations or whatever, you know what I'm talking about. And in particularly in ministry and preaching. Right? There's, a, there's an adrenaline drain, and the body responds to that with, a, with the depression. If you just leave it alone, you'll be done in about 12 to 24 hours, uh, and, and you're, you're fine again. It's not an attack of the devil. It's a gift from God. It's how he restores. But that text arrives as he's heading down the back slope of that depression. Okay, so here's where we pick up the story. Verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger, oh, it says messenger, not text, but you get it, to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And Elijah was afraid. 
and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there when, while he himself then went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than dead anyway. Then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him, said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread, baked over hot coal, still steaming, and a jar of water he ate and drank, and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights into the desert until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left now. They're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore at the mountains and shattered the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And the earthquake, after the earthquake, came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave, and the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? This is a, a great story in, at many, many, many levels. So I'm going to just going to highlight a few things. Situation, Carmel, where this conflict occurred between uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal is in the far north of the country. Uh, Beersheba, where he leaves his servant Elisha, is in the far south of the country. So on the strength of Jezebel's text, he runs, terrified for his life, 250 miles south and then crosses over the border so he's out of her political and military reach. Now remember, this is a guy who's called down fire from heaven 24 hours before. That's how strategic the enemy that we have is. He's limited resources, he has no creativity, but he knows how to marshal his resources with amazing cleverness. Timing is everything, right? When you receive bad news is often more devastating than the news you receive. And this is the case. So he is, he is, he is that normal adrenaline drain depression that is the gift of God to restore balance after high energy is tanked. He tanks. And he goes and runs, and the physical exertion is, is such that the, all of his resources are spent 
in this, in this condition, in this place. And of course, it doesn't work, never works to run from pain. But here he is, outside of the reach of Jezebel. He lies down under a broom bush and prays to die. He doesn't have the energy to follow through on his prayer. He falls asleep. And the very first thing he notices, an angel's shaking him by the arm. Wake up. And there, eat and drink. And there on the rock by his head, a, a still steaming, freshly baked loaf of bread. And a jar of cold water. As it turns out, the best remedy for adrenaline-drained depression is sleep and simple food and simple drink. Apparently, the angel knows this because that's what he provides, right? And then Elijah goes back to sleep again. You get, this, get the story. But here's, now where, here's where it starts to take an interesting turn. The next time the angel wakes him up, shakes him awake, says, arise and eat, get up and eat, because the journey is too much. It's too great for you. The journey is too great for you. Do you notice what happened here? Elijah was not aware that he was on a journey. He was running for his life. He had prayed to die. And in that moment, the God who is always with him meets him at the place of his deepest despair and converts his escape to encounter. The journey, which you're now on, news to you, Rerouting that little lady in the GPS thing. Rerouting. That's the voice he hears. The journey that you didn't know you were on is too great for you. And there, still on the rock by his head, still steaming loaf of bread, freshly baked, jar of cold water, gets up, eats, and drinks. And the next says, in the strength of that food, he goes into the desert 40 days, 40 nights, which is blink, 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 right? We've talked about this many times. Jaron talked about this last week. The idea of 40 days and 40 nights is not to, intended to signal a literal 24-hour, 40 days and 40 nights. It is to signal euphemistically this idea as long as it takes. You'll see it regularly right in the story of Israel and Jesus. 40 days and 40 nights means there's work to be done and we will be here until it gets done. Right? So he goes into the desert, 40 days, 40 nights, and finds himself at Horeb, otherwise known to us as Sinai. This is the mountain where Moses met God. And you'll notice how strategic he is because Elijah has begun to think again, which is not always a good thing. Right? Because when he goes to this mountain, Horeb, the mountain of God, he, and the Hebrew here is much more evocative than the NIV allows us to do. He hides himself, it says, in the cleft of the rock. Now, if you're students of the Old Testament, you will recognize that exact phrase from Moses' journey with God in Exodus chapter 32, 33, 34, where God places him in the cleft in the rock, covers him there with his hand, passes by so that Moses can see where God just was. Anybody starting to figure out what Elijah's strategy is? 
He's gone into the desert 40 days, 40 nights on a journey that he had not counted to take. Silence and solitude will reshape, redirect, reorient your life away from the noise of the Jezebels and the noise of the successes of yesterday. But be careful, because you will tend to co-opt silence and solitude for your purposes. What's he doing? He's going to Moses' mountain. He's hiding in Moses' cave. And so he hears a voice. Now do you get the kind of tone of voice with which the Lord asks the question? What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, why would God ask that question? Please notice, God never asks questions so he can gain information. He's asking Elijah to look in the mirror of the question, and this is one of the gifts that solitude provides you, is that it asks, gives you permission to hear a question that you might not, that is always there. The question is always there, but you don't always have capacity to hear it, and particularly you don't have capacity to hear the next question that just lies underneath it, the question that wants to be asked, that we push down with our busyness. The place of encounter, the word of the Lord that we push down with the noise of our 24-7 soundscape. Right? Here he is in this cleft in the rock, wanting to meet God, at least wanting to meet Moses' God. And he trots out his list of problems. I've, I've been very zealous, and on and on the list goes. And you'll notice God doesn't even respond. Doesn't even respond. He, he just, ah, go out and stand. I'm, I'm coming by. Oh, and you can feel. Can, can't you just feel Elijah saying, this is it. This is it. I'm going to whip out the iPhone. I've, I got to get this. Right? This is going on my feet. And, 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 and I don't know if your God does this. If you're not, you need to get a new God. But my God plays because I see him playing here with his friend Elijah who still doesn't quite get him. Because what does God do on Moses' mountain? That's exactly what he does. <laughs> he shows up first. It says the wind blows, this, this mighty rushing wind and powerful, powerful, blowing rocks in front of it, tearing mountains apart. That's how powerful this wind is, Right? And, but he's not in the, in, in the wind. Well, why might there be a reasonable expectation that he would be in the wind? Because he showed up in the wind with Moses on this mountain last time. But not this time. Oh. And after the wind, an earthquake. And you can feel as the ground begins to tremor, Elijah's heart begin to beat because last time God showed up with Moses on this mountain, guess what there was? An earthquake. But the Lord isn't in the earthquake. And now what? Fire. Oh, here we go. A twofer. Right? Because last time God showed up in this mountain with Elijah, I mean, with Moses, guess one of the ways that he showed up? Fire. And by the way, Elijah knows something about fire and God's showing up in fire. 
you can feel, okay, okay, this must be it. The other stuff, prelim, you know, opening act. All right, all right, I get it, I get it. Here, now, fire. But the Lord's not in the fire. Anybody feeling the disappointment, frustration, maybe even just a little bit of anger? As he's tried to co-opt the silence for his nostalgic spirituality. And then it says, the sound, then he heard the sound, in the Hebrew here is so evocative, the sound of the thin silence. Most of our translations try to get this, the sound of a gentle whisper or a still small voice or a gentle blowing. But the Hebrew doesn't say any of those things. The Hebrew says the sound of silence. And as soon as Elijah heard the silence, he recognized God's presence and voice. Covered his head to hear. What are you doing here, Elijah? What silence and solitude enable for us, train us in, create for us, is capacity to honor the past but not cling to it. To let it go so that we've got some empty real estate in our souls for the new that God might wish to do. As it turns out, if we follow the story along, Elijah's ministry is beginning to end, but God has some important things for him to do. He has to anoint a successor. He has to anoint a new king. He's got stuff to do, right? And, and this silence is intended to prepare him for the new that God might want to do through his servant, Elisha. And unfortunately, like us, Elijah is anchored to the past of what God has done and wants repetition. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that part of, the, part of, part of this, and, and uh, it's one of the reasons, I'll be very honest, one of the reasons why I love work, worshiping in a middle school theater. It's really hard to get nostalgic about this place. I'm kind of nostalgic about Cahiba, to be honest. You know? For those of you who are with us, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we anchor God's presence to God's place? Because that's we're, we're dirt people. We're, we're made of the dirt. Right? Genesis chapter 2. So we will inevitably find ourselves attaching to the dirt which disables our freedom to respond to the Spirit. So God has to, over time, regularly, consistently, time after time after time, take away our attachment to the dirt so that we can present, be present to him wherever he is, which is everywhere that we are. Does, it, does that make sense? And solitude then trains us away from attachment to place so we can be present to the God who is always present to us. There's no place that you can be that he isn't. 
He is nearer to you than you are to yourself, nearer to you than the very breath that fills your lungs. This is what Brian led us in earlier. But if you're not tuned into that, and particularly if you push down that awareness with noise externally and noise internally, with multiple relationships externally as a way, and here's what ends up happening, unfortunately. If we are not present to God in the moment, we will inevitably, because he's the one from whom we gain our definition of selves, yes? It's our relationship with him that helps us to know who we are. And when we are disconnected from that, when we are unaware of that, when we have lost track of that through the multiple relationships, guess what we have become? We have become parasites on the relationships with others that we are now counting on to give us definition of ourselves. One of the things that I have to work through with couples in marriage is that your husband's job, your wife's job is not to make you happy. Their job is to be themselves fully beloved in Christ, to enable you to become fully who you are, beloved in Christ, and to share the journey together, supporting one another through mutual submission. But if you get this, you become parasites in the relationship. And it's not just true about marriage, is it? It's true about friendships, and the, and the, more, the more needy we are, the, the, more, the, more, the more clingy we are in the patterns of relationships, the less capable, the more we will constantly be looking to others and blaming others because they're not all that God is supposed to be to us. Anybody else feel the injustice in that? And recognize yourself in the mirror. No, 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 no. And so what will God do? Because he loves you, he will invite you to the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And the journey that you thought was escape will, if you show up, radically transform your sense of who God is and who you are. But you can avoid it all by turning the volume to 11, by filling your social calendar with everything but space for engagement with the God who wishes to engage with you. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.